0: Courage is the most important of all the virtues. Because without courage, you can't practice any other virtue consistently. Welcome to Building Grit. One call at a time. Every human being will be faced with a massive challenge. How you deal with problems is based on grit, determination, perseverance, and will. On this show, we talk to people who face challenges and how they dealt with them. This is Building Grit, One Call at a Time. And this is your host, Nick Wingo.
1: Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Building Grit, One Call at a Time. In this podcast, I'm so fortunate to get to talk to people about their story, the story behind the story. And I also get to talk about my experiences, work experiences, kind of relating to people's stories. And today I am super excited to introduce to you guys Heather Gaines. Heather, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing it outstanding.
1: I really appreciate you jumping on the podcast with me. I'm I'm very excited about this conversation and where it can go. Uh, Just knowing a little bit about your story from kind of following you and looking around, I'm super excited to, number one, get the chance to talk to you. And number two, for my listeners to get a chance to uh, just be reminded that they're not alone in their situations.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Because there's always somebody who's probably going through what you're going through. And the more you hold it inside, the more torture. You know you have, but you just need to know that there is probably always somebody in a room or somewhere that is actually have gone through or is going through something that you have.
1: Absolutely. So you've you've written a book, which is super awesome. Uh, Am I dead yet? Uh, you are a stand up paddleboard instructor. I love that. I'm terrible at stand up paddleboarding. I'm getting better. I'm learning, but right. yeah. So you've you've got a, a lot of stuff going on. But you also have a story. So uh, number one, tell me a little bit about what you're doing right now, kind of where you are in life. Tell me a little bit about the book, a little bit about the, you know, being a stand-up paddleboard instructor. Tell me about what, what's life right now.
2: Life is actually pretty good. I live in Key West, and so my work is year-round. And I do, like you said, I'm a stand-up paddleboard instructor, and I teach. I also do eco-tours through the mangroves down here in Key West. I have also just made a dream come true. I have just published my first book, Am I Dead Yet? It's actually a little bio of life as I know it and the experiences that I've been through. And, you know, I never would have thought in my wildest dreams that I would be living on an island doing paddleboarding for a living. and. Because where I was for a good 15 years was in a self induced hell, pretty much with addiction to cocaine, alcohol, and just no confidence. And, you know, I just kept putting all that stuff in my system to push down all of the, the things that I had gone through, didn't wanna face. And right now, I wake up every day. And, you know, thank my higher power for an amazing life. I always say, if you can look up, you can get up, you know, and I'm, I'm grateful every day. And I wrote this book. So like you said, there's a lot of people that go through stuff that just don't know how to get unstuck. And I figured if I put this out all all the grit, all the truth, and just all my crazy experiences. If I can inspire one person, then, you know, I've done an awesome job.
1: And it's worth it. Just inspire one. It's totally worth it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I've gotten, you know, I just actually just released the book the middle of August. And it took me, it took me about a year to do it and to go through all the stories and experiences, a lot of it was fun. A lot of it is just people are like, how did you live through that? How did you get out of that situation? But the grit was telling my story of the real ugly, the things that maybe people don't talk about. And some of the things in my book are are very graphic. And But I did that to To let people know that it's okay to tell somebody to don't hold it in because it's just going to build, build, build. And when that build of anxiety and everything burst, you don't know where it's going to take you. You really don't. You don't.
0: You
1: don't. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's let's talk about it a little bit. Let's talk about your story. Let's talk about, you know, let's talk about Heather as a kid. What Where did Heather come from as a kid? Where were you when you were younger? Like, where does it start?
2: Well, it starts in a little teeny town in the Bay Area of Northern California called Martinez. And it was, we moved there from, I think, San Pablo when I was like four or five. I have three, well, I had three older brothers and- I have a sister that's seven years younger than me, but it was basically my three older brothers and myself, lower middle class family, lived in an awesome little suburb called Forest Hills. That there was, we lived on a street that had a cul de sac. So there was probably 15 houses on my street, and most of the houses had kids. So it was back in the day where, you know, everybody played outside. you know you had to come home when the street lights were on and it was pretty amazing we had horses but the thing was heather as a kid you know moving pretty much starting my life there at 5 i'm a product of an alcoholic father who and a very codependent mother and who pretty much did the best they could but you know there was a lot of chaos in my family my three older brothers and myself my brother seemed to be Sometimes in and out of trouble a lot. I just remember hearing my middle brother being arrested for breaking and entering. But you know, on the if you looked at us on the outside, maybe you wouldn't see the chaos. But my father was became known as Dick Gaines. You know, the town drunk and stuff. He worked construction, and but I was always daddy's girl. I always looked up to him. He was a very very funny man very charismatic, very handsome. So he could get away with a lot of stuff, right? But my life started with with that. As a little kid, I- so That was what you uh, were seeing.
1: You're seeing somebody who's an alcoholic who is functioning, right? Yes. And still likable and still-
2: Yeah. Getting
1: through life. And so you're seeing this this father, fig- your father as like, ah, oh, he's a drinker and he, he does fine. He's, he's, he's charismatic. He's this great man, right? So you kind of see that as normal.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of abnormal that I found normal. But you know, the fights between my parents and things like that. But you know, I started swimming competing at a young age, probably six or seven. So that was basically my outlet. And by the time I was nine, they'd hired a private coach. And they were pretty much grooming me for going to trying to go to the Olympics. So so my whole like probably started in the sixth grade. I was swimming before school. I was swimming after school. And meanwhile, that's what what I did, but still coming home and, you know, having my dad would get progressively worse. And at the age of nine, I became my mother's sounding board, telling me how unhappy she was in her marriage, how she wished she could leave my dad. I mean, I was
1: nine years old.
2: What you and you're nine? nine. Yeah.
1: that's terrible. <laughs> yeah. I have, yeah, I have, but- I have a nine-year-old right now, and he would be like, "Okay, like I don't understand. You, you don't comprehend at nine. No, Zero frontal lobe like, development."
2: Yeah, yeah. So, I just knew that my mom was sad, you know, and that she just. But every time my dad would do something, he would come back and talk her back into. I'm going to change. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Well, you know, flash forward in my adult life, I always said I would never be like my father. As I grew up, I saw how the drinking was just tearing everything apart. All the wheels were coming off the bus. And um, I always said I would never be like my father. Well, you know, I ended up just like my father. But we had my brothers that we all swam and we, you know, we, Walked to school or rode the bus. Sometimes we'd ride our horses. It was very rural where I grew up. So, but it was just, it was, although there's a lot of chaos, I feel like I had like the best childhood ever, you know, but so the swimming, everything, my mother tried to leave my dad a couple times, but again, she always brought him back. Fast forward to when I'm 15. My mother's sister lived in Virginia Beach, and she used to come to visit. And, you know, my whole life, I was always just trying to fit in. I was always trying to be...
1: So, Were you the, were you the youngest?
2: I was in California. And then, you know, my mom had my, had my sister. She's seven years younger than me. She was a oh, bit wow. of a surprise. <laughs> and, um, so... Oh, and that's another crazy story in itself that I found out from a neighbor from like probably eight years ago, how my sister came to be conceived where I was like, why are you telling me this? Um, My
1: mom and my best friend's
2: mom decided they were going to get pregnant together. Wouldn't it be fun to have another baby? And so it was kind of like this game they were playing. So of course my mom gets pregnant, her friend does not. And then there's my mom with this new baby. All right. My sister doesn't even know that. So I'm striving to fit in. I'm this tall, skinny girl with crazy curly hair, whereas, you know, everybody has straight hairs in the 70s, and I just, I never got asked out. I never did. I was always everybody's friend. So that starts to develop. That starts to develop, feeling not worthy. Never, Nobody's ever going to ask me out, all this stuff. And so somebody said, try out for cheerleading. And I wasn't very coordinated for that. So I tried out. I didn't make it. I tried out. Then I made it on this Pop Warner football team. I was like, yay, I finally made it. I'm a cheerleader. I'm somebody. You know. In the ninth grade, they said, Heather, try out for the high school cheerleading. I was like, there's no way they're ever going to pick me. Well, I ended up getting picked. And so in the history of my school, I was the first ninth grader to become a varsity cheerleader. So I was like, I have arrived, I have made it, I'm finally going to just be the popular girl. Well, when I was 15, like I said, my aunt came to visit and she said, Heather, why don't you come back to Virginia Beach and spend the summer, spend a couple of weeks, get to know your cousins and things like that. So my mom said, yeah, that's fine. You You can practice your cheerleading, you can do whatever there. So I went and... In Virginia Beach, where my cousins were, they were extremely Southern. Everybody dressed different. They talked funny. And it's seersucker, alligators on their shirts, polos, button-down Oxford. I couldn't even understand my cousin because she had such a Southern drawl. So I am like this big, like crazy. I just didn't belong there. But my cousin, I found out, drank. And I started drinking... I had my first drink when I was eight, and that was a tequila sunrise. And I remember it to this day at a New Year's Eve party. I had started drinking in the fifth grade when I decided I was going to help my dad stop drinking. So I would sneak like some of the bottles of liquor and put them in, I would empty cough medicine bottles and put them in in the cough medicine bottles and I'd take them to school and I would drink them. That pretty much really started in the seventh grade. So I would be chugging cream de mince in the bathroom. I thought it was helping my dad, you know, but then I, I realized that awesome feeling that I got after the first drink, after the first sip of alcohol, it was glowing. It made me feel so nice, like I could do anything. So my drinking started really early. So I'm, so I'm in Virginia Beach and I find out that my cousin likes to drink too. So where I'm just having fun and I'm swimming with their country clubs teams and just, you know, learning the Virginia Beach. They lived on the beach. So it was fun going to the beach, learning to surf. So after two weeks, my mother calls and um, my aunt's in the room and she says, your mom needs to talk to you. Okay. So my mom calls and says, Heather, I've decided to leave your dad. I'm like, Well, you've told me that before. Yeah. I said, Well, okay, uh, hey, yeah. well, I'll come. You
1: know? Okay. <laughs> you awesome. <laughs> you've told me that several times. So you're like, Okay. Yeah, sure. Whatever. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. She says, No, I'm serious. My best friend and I are going to drive out there. And I've got your little sister who I think was like four or five at the time. And we're going to drive out. And I said, Okay. She says, but you've got to decide whether you want to live with me or your father. I'm like, what? And she says, if you're going to live with me, you're going to stay in Virginia. Well, all of a sudden I was like, well, <laughs> you know, 15 old, what about my trophies? What about my posters? You know, I'm like, wow, what about, and I knew I wasn't going to live with my dad because his drinking had gotten so bad. And I'm like, she says, yeah, so you'll just stay out there. And then I think, what about my cheerleading? I'm gonna be popular. I have finally made it," she says. "Well, Heather, that's the decision you have to make." Oh my God, it was one of the worst days of my life. So then she says, "Here, talk to your father." And I'm like, "What?" He's like, "They cu-? my nickname was Hooch, and uh, my dad had named me Heather Howard Hooch McGooch McGarbage Gaines in one of his I don't know." So he's like, "Hooch, I love you so much. Don't ever forget that." And so I hand the phone to my aunt and I'm just like wrecked. So the book really takes off there where here I am in this huge town. They take me to show me the high school and I actually thought it was a hotel because it was so big. (laughs) um, You know, I I didn't know anybody and my cousins all were private school, you know, debutante, cotillion stuff. And here I'm going to have to go to this big school starting in the 10th grade. So I just felt like my life was over. And- you can only imagine
1: because I remember when I was in high school, I got switched high schools in 10th grade. And that's a really difficult time in life because you're really just starting to kind of come into yourself and understand who you are and really develop your, your personality. And then you get moved to another school And so I can totally resonate with that. Like, you know, and now you got to make all the new friends and you've been with these same set of kids for probably a significant amount of time. And that's part of your identity, right? Like it's part of who you are is the the kids you're hanging out with. And then now you throw this in and it's like your whole world changes. And like at 15, 16, everything is a big deal. Like everything (laughs) is a really big deal. And it's like, yeah my parents are mean, and I can't believe they're doing this to me, and life's gonna end because of these things. Like, and now looking back, I'm like, you know, so ridiculous. However, when you're in that moment, that's the way you feel. That's your reality of like, fuck, man, like this sucks,
2: yeah, yeah. And I had started smoking pot in the ninth grade. and so when I moved to Virginia, I was like, nobody drinks, and nobody smokes pot, you know, because that's because that's what I kind of figured. I'm like, how is this gonna be fun? How is this gonna be fun?
1: You people are lame.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You people don't even know. Don't you know I'm from California?
1: <laughs> right.
2: And I kept telling people that to think I was cool, you know. And of course I didn't wasn't a surfer girl or anything like that. I was just, you know. The whole high school stuff, I met a good friend. I started drinking. I didn't do really well in school, but I did learn to surf and things like that. But then I got into the restaurant business where I finally found these are my people. These are my people. They love to have fun. They like to have drinks after work. And that's when um, cocaine became introduced to my life. Which I was like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever had in my life. I can be happy. I can do. I can be a totally different person because that was the thing.
1: Was it about the disconnect? Was that what what drove you to it? Was like that the biggest factor for you of like you were able to to disconnect from all the shit that you had going on in your life? Like was that what drove you drove you to it? Is like that whole if I do this now, I don't have to live in reality.
2: You know, in hindsight, I think that's probably. Probably it, because I didn't I didn't like who I was. I wasn't ever comfortable in my skin. Yeah, I didn't have one date in high school, and Mm. I was hanging out with some popular kids, and it just was like it never never happened. And I I went to prom, which was a big disaster, which is a funny story in the book. But yeah, so I always felt like something was wrong with me, because. I didn't have what everybody else had, you know, I was constantly comparing my, my outsides to everybody else's outsides. And how do you not do
1: that based off from what you've seen, what the environment you've been in? I mean, there's always two thoughts processes is like either when you have something happen to you, it's like either, um, a lot of people say like, how could I have not been like this? Or how could I have been like this? So you then right. kind of led into the like, well, this is who I am because of my circumstances. And so like I, I this is just where we're at.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you know, I just was just kind of rolling with it, just trying to attach myself to people who, you know, liked me, I guess. And but it always seemed like everybody always had more than me and everybody else had always something better. And I always wanted that better, but I didn't know how to get it. And when I moved to Virginia Beach, that meant my swimming is done also. I was swimming with a country club team and there was really no competition for me because I was just, I beat all the guys. I beat you know everybody out of my age group. And my mother was like, well, we can get you you know, there's a college program that we can get you. But, you know, when I moved to Virginia, I was like anti-everything. I was like, no, you just you just ripped my whole life apart.
1: So you're boycotting. You're like, this is my yeah. way of telling you yeah. guys you suck. You suck. Yeah. And so now I'm not doing anything.
2: Yeah. And so, and I'm thinking I'm doing this against you where, you know, I'm really just, Should have need. I needed that outlet actually, but you know, my mom's like, "Well, why don't you try out for the basketball team? Why don't you do this?" And and I did it to appease her, and I sucked, you know. And I just, my heart wasn't in anything. So after you know, I get into the restaurant business and I become a bartender, and this is great. I can be somebody who somebody else than myself. I've got between me and the bar and. I can entertain people all day long. And with a little cocaine put on top of that, I was just, I was 10 feet tall and fireproof.
1: Life of the party.
2: Yeah, yeah, and it was great because it seemed like everybody in that restaurant was doing it, and there was nothing wrong with it because everything was in control. So far, everything was in control. But, you know, as time went, it wasn't really. So one afternoon on bartending, and I had a couple of people that would come into the bar for lunch and it was this this guy who was a captain on a yacht and his first mate and they'd sit at the bar. The captain had a little crush on me. So so he'd always just flirt and we're talking. And one afternoon his first mate, who was this girl came in and said, Heather, have you ever thought about getting in the yachting getting into the yachting industry? And I'm like, what's that? She said, Well basically kind of bartending on water because I was Sounds always, amazing. Yeah, I was always looking for an adventure. Anybody say, hey, let's do this. Always an adrenaline junkie, always looking for the next whatever. So I said, well, what would I have to do? She said, well, the boat goes up to a place called the Tides Inn. The owners just want like a continental breakfast. They want you to do some light hors d'oeuvres and make some drinks. I'm like, well, this sounds awesome. How much does it pay? (laughs) You know, Not like I have to learn anything about working on a boat right? That's what I'm thinking. I'll just figure it out. And that was my whole MO. I'll just say yes and figure it out. So I went and met with the captain and he's like, this is what the job entails. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. I got that. No problem. I got that. I didn't even know port from starboard. Okay. So I BS my way through that job. Awesome. And um, I remember one story where we were coming back to the dock and he's, backing in, going what we call stern two. And he's telling me, Heather, make sure you get the starboard line on that piling, get the starboard line on that piling. I'm like, okay. And I'm like, shit, I don't know what starboard is. I don't know. (laughs) I'm like (laughs) left or right. So I'm like panicking and I'm like looking for a sign for him to point something. And I'm just like, oh my God. And he's like, Heather, get the starboard line on. And he's not pointing. And I'm like, I am. So I'm just kind of holding, like walking slowly toward the lines. And when you're docking a boat, if there's wind or any kind of current, it's pivotal. You get whatever line the captain wants on. (laughs) And so he's like red in the face, shouting at me. And I look at him finally. And he's like, he points. I'm like, I am doing it. And so I threw the line on. I'm like, see, what's the big deal? So from then on, I put red a red marker on my left toe and a green marker on my right toe so to remind me what was port and starboard
1: (laughs) i love that that's so great you do what you gotta do you pivot and you just little things like that you do what you gotta do that's so awesome
2: yeah so i worked for him for the summer and then i went back to my bartending job and it was about a year later i get a call from this girl again she's like heather remember me i'm like sure She says, well, I've got another job if you're interested. I'm like, sure, what's up? She says, it's in the Bahamas. Well, everything stopped there. I was like, and I'm thinking, I've never been to the Bahamas. I'll figure this out. (laughs) So I said, well, what does it entail? She says, well, this is going to take a little more. They take six guests, you know, for four days. So you got to do breakfast, lunch, dinner, do hors d'oeuvres, make a dessert. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, my mom was a really good cook. So I'll just get some recipes from her. Yeah, of course. So when do I start? How do I get this job? (laughs) Not even, you know, not even thinking about prepping or what the hell. So I talked to the captain and he sounds like this very nice. His name was Ruben Smith. And he sounded like this, this really nice man. And I don't know anything about the Bahamas. I know there's Bahamians, and you know, so but I'm just know that it's pretty, it's pretty in the magazines I've seen, and I'm like, yeah. So I tell my mom that I'm going to the Bahamas, and you know, this is back in the '80s, and she says, "Heather, aren't you afraid of white slavery?" I'm like, "What?" She's like, "Well, you know, you're a pretty girl," and I'm, mom, I'm like, "Mom, you're losing your mind." I was like, "Just be quiet." So the day comes that to go meet this guy. And I've got a bag of cookbooks and recipes from my mom. So I fly into on this little puddle jumper to Nassau. And I'm looking for, like, I'm thinking it's the all-American captain, blonde hair, blue eyes, and just whatever you might see on TV. And there's three guys and they're all Bahamian. And one looks like he's an ex-NFL football player. And I'm looking for a Reuben Smith, looking, not even looking at these people, but just so all of a sudden this big NFL guy comes up, says, hi, my name's Reuben. I'm like, nothing that I thought. I'm like, hi, I'm Heather. He gets me on the boat, introduces me to to the first mate named Toothpick, who's another Bahamian. And, you know, that whole first adventure started out crazy because the first night I was kind of afraid because I didn't know these people, and now I'm in this situation where you know it's pre cell phone, but maybe maybe they're not nice people. maybe I don't know. so the night that um the captain picked me up from the from the airport, we went to the restaurant, had a couple of drinks, and then he took me back to the boat, showed me the boat, and then I'm like, okay this is different. This is a lot different from the other boat I was on. But so I thought, well, he showed me my cabin and little cabin with two twin beds. And I'm like, okay. So I'm just gonna go to sleep, get a good night's sleep so I can wake up early. He's like, okay, I'm going back out. Okay. Well, I wake up and I lock my door because I don't know these people. I wake up at three o'clock in the morning and there's jiggling at my door. Like someone's trying to get into my room. And I'm like, I'm like, who is it? and the jiggling, jiggling keeps going, and nobody's saying anything. I'm like, holy fuck, what's, what's happening? And I'm like thinking, now I'm thinking, what did I really get myself into? And uh, jiggling, jiggling, jiggling. I'm like, who's there? And the door bursts open, and it's Ruben in his little BVD underwears, you know, his little white tidy whities And I'm like, what the fuck are you, get out of my room. And he's all drunk and he's like leaning into me and I'm thinking, oh, this is, this is bad. This is bad. I'm like, God, I'm shouting at the top of my lungs, get the fuck out of my room, get out of my room. And I finally pushed him out and I shut the door and I'm just sitting against the door and I'm really freaking out. And I'm like, did this guy, was this guy just trying to get to me? Was he gonna, you know, so... I finally chill out a little bit. About an hour later, I decide I just need to get some fresh air. So I go up top to the top deck, and it's beautiful out, and it's pitch black. And actually, I hadn't met the – I hadn't met the – first mate yet. Yeah. And all of a sudden, in, out of the darkness, I hear this voice, are you all right? And I'm like, oh my God, who else is on this boat? And I'm like, who are you? What did you get away? And here comes the tallest, skinniest guy I've ever seen in my life. And he's like, my name's Toothpick. I'm the first mate. He's like, are you all right? And I'm like crying. I'm like, Ruben just tried to come into my room and I didn't know what, you blah, 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 blah. He said he was probably just trying to make sure you are okay. I'm like, but he was in his underwear and he was drunk. And so the situation, you know, the next morning I wake up and he's like, how are you doing? Like nothing happened. <laughs> I'm like, why did you come in my room? He said, I was just trying to check on you. He's like, you freaked out. I'm like, well, I'm not used to some stranger coming in my room in their underwear. And so that started my whole yachting career. So that lasted for about six months. The boat got foreclosed on. I moved to Lauderdale, got a job on another boat. And it's crazy because these boats kept getting bigger. And the thing is, is that I never was confident in my job. I was always afraid I was going to be found out that I wasn't a cook, that I wasn't a chef, that I'm cheating because I'm looking at recipes. So imagine that pressure on yourself 24 seven and trying to put on the mask that you are this competent girl. But the weird thing was, was that I just, I kept getting these more awesome jobs, paying me more stupid money. And I never could understand why, because I had no confidence. And I wouldn't tell anybody that I didn't, I needed help or I didn't know what I was doing because... And you might be found out. Yes. I was afraid of being found out. I really thought that chefs didn't read recipes. So I'd have cookbooks underneath my pillow and I'd run down to my room and look at the recipe and come back up and get those three cups of sugar because I made everything from scratch because I didn't think you could cheat by buying any of these store-bought things. Which is what they all do. Yeah. But I'm putting out this amazing food, which is because I've got Bon Appetit magazines. I've got food and wine. I'm like, well, I'll try this. If it doesn't work, I'll just make it pretty, you know, because I always cooked in colors. So if it didn't taste really good, they'd be like the first impression would be, ooh, ah. So, I mean, it's just crazy how this whole career started.
1: And I'm sure that during this whole process, it's parties. Drinking, all that, all the things because you're living oh. the lifestyle. You're you're in it oh. and you have access to all the things.
2: Yeah, I became an extension of their wealth. So what people were doing, and you know, when when I'd be home, because I kept a place in Lauderdale, I finally found out where my friend was getting the drugs. So, you know, it was it was I got to be friends with these with a bunch of Europeans and they knew how to party. These guys had been on the yachts, the European scene. They knew how to party. Everybody always had eight balls. Everybody did, so it was just like no problem running. You know, going home at five a.m., trying to get home before the sun come up came up because you never wanted that sun to come up because you'd feel real sleazy. You know, sneaking into your apartment and shutting off all the uh, the things. But I kept it pretty much under control for the probably first eight years. But you know, I started drinking wine like at lunch. And then I start drinking wine at dinner, but I always prided myself where, which is not really pride. It's kind of foolish, but I wouldn't go to bed or eat until all my stuff was done. So I was just on this hamster wheel for years like this. Finally, when my dishes were done and everything, I'd sit, I'd have like some brie, some cheese, some apples, and a couple glasses of wine. Then I go to bed. I'd wake up at like four o'clock, especially if I was trying like to make bagels or croissants. So just in case they didn't work out, nobody was up yet, I could redo it. So just think about all that craziness. And so whenever it came time to have a weekend, it was like, it's on, let's go. And so I didn't have to hide my cooking. I could just be this free and easy, just fun, fun, fun girl. But, you know, it's like towards the end of the career, my, my biggest yacht was a 168 foot fed ship that <laughs> took 12 guests and 10 crew. And I remember coming over the hill. I was in Antigua because I, I, they paid me to see the world. It was amazing. So I'm in Antigua and I'm looking at this boat and I'm telling my boyfriend, I really don't think I can do this. I don't. Think I can do this. But you know, meanwhile, I have picked up a lot of tricks of the trade. So, but I ended up working on that boat. And I was like, to this day, I really don't know how I pulled it off. I really don't remember how I was feeding the crew, feeding the guests three meals a day, you know, all that stuff. So I decided I I did that boat. I left on a good term, but I decided I think I should freelance a little bit because. That way I could spend my time partying in Fort Lauderdale and then just go off, you know, for a couple of weeks, make my money, come back. And, um, at this point I had met this, this guy who I was engaged to, he was from England and he didn't do any drugs. So I'm hiding my drug use from him. We're very much in love. We get engaged in St. Bart's and everything is great. And, um, You know, he would be probably one of the first ones to really break my heart, you know. But I realized the yachting career when I was doing this freelancing, I realized that I really had a problem with cocaine and drinking when I'd picked up this freelance job and I had days to provision this boat. Luckily, it was only like 60 feet, so it wasn't big and only like four guests. And I find myself, because I'd gone out the night before, I found myself in the grocery store at two o'clock in the morning provisioning for this boat and looking in the Sara Lee dessert section and I'm looking to see what kind of desserts I can use that I can garnish to make pretty because I just can't, don't have the, I just don't, I'm just too tired. I'm just too tired to think about making desserts. I just need to get through this trip so I can get my money So I can pay my rent, you know, and, you know, I showed up and I was, you know, trying to have myself together and, you know, you couldn't bring drugs on the boat. So after, you know, you become so accustomed to drinking and drugging to go without, you're really on edge. Luckily, this was a four day trip and um, I did it. And um, but life got hard. Life got hard. I ran into this. Matthew had moved, broken my heart, cheated on me. I was like, okay, met this other guy who was pretty much a sociopath, promised me the world, everything like that. And I'm like, I finally found my prince charming. This is a really good story in the book. Come to find out he wasn't who he was, didn't do anything. He had a plane ticket for me. I had packed all my bags, quit the industry. Went home to Virginia and was so excited to move with this guy and start my dream. Well, when I went to the airport, there was no, you know, this was before computers, So you had to have your ticket confirmation number from the people. So he had given me my confirmation number. None of the airlines had it. And I'm all packed. And this is the night before where he's telling me how much he loves me. He's telling my best friend he can't wait to just like start our life. So I'm standing there. I'm going through every airline. And I'm like, after two hours, I'm like, this motherfucker, I don't have a ticket. So I'm trying to call him, you know, phone cards, quarters, trying to get him in Quebec. And his father's like, he's not here. He's not here. I don't know you. Who are you? And I'm like... I'm like engaged to this guy, this, this man doesn't know who I am. And so that sent me into probably one of the biggest depressions of my life where I was totally stripped of anything in my being. I was just, I was not worthy of anything on this planet. And my poor best friend got to pick up those pieces. So I, I spent a good 10 days drinking my face off and contemplating suicide. And thinking, Mm -hmm. I'm never gonna win. I'm never gonna, I don't know why, but nothing, nothing is ever gonna be good, ever gonna be good. So that really put me into this. I don't give a shit about myself because I'm just like a piece of shit because, you know, I have my best friend and I'm stuck in Virginia with no money, no nothing. And what am I gonna do? And so, the progression gets gets worse. I meet up with this guy and who I'd met in the '80s, who had a really good restaurant, and I remember he was a big partier. And I, you know, I do my job. I was a catering director of this gourmet company, which it was awesome because I kept my miniature bottles in my file cabinet. So you know, now I'm drinking during the day just because I don't care. But I'm also making it look like I can do my job, I can do my job, putting on that happy face. That gets really hard after a while. It's The masks masks are just really hard to put on after a while. So um, I meet this guy and I see him in this bar that I'm at. And I said, you look really familiar to me. And he said, yeah, I'm so-and-so. I used to have whatever in the 80s. I'm like, oh yeah. And so we just started conversation and he's like, hey, do you do this? And he he's got hands me this, um, this bag of cocaine. I'm like, Oh my God, this is my new best friend. So I go in, I do a couple bumps. We have wine. Well, we start hanging out, hanging out every day at happy hour. And we decide we should open a restaurant. We should open a restaurant. So we turn this hair salon in from a hair salon into this little restaurant. Meanwhile, my cocaine habit is now getting to be close to an eight ball a day. Wow. Yeah. And so I am trying to hold down these jobs, trying to keep an apartment. I'd had a couple apartments where I got so overwhelmed that I would just, they, I would trash them that I get so overwhelmed not to clean them that I would just leave and find somewhere else to live. <laughs> <You know>? Wow. <laughs> and borrow money. And, you know, that's the state I was in. So we're we're trying to open we're trying to get this restaurant together meanwhile i'm dating this other guy who's promised me the world telling me he's divorced and i just felt like i guess i was that magnet i don't know someone so christmas eve this guy doesn't show up he's in maryland i call him he's like hey, we've been together a year he goes i don't know why you keep calling me i don't love you i've never loved you and he had three kids that became i came became very close to and that was That was the one that snapped. That was the one I picked up my Christmas tree. I threw it down the stairs. Something in me broke in half inside. And this guy, Chuck, who always had a pocket full of money and a pocket full of blow. And I was like, you know what? I can't make any more decisions in my life. I'm not worthy. I just quit. I just kind of quit my life. And I'm going to hang out with this guy and I'll just do whatever he says. We weren't ever romantic, although he wanted us to be romantic. He was this ex-football player, huge, you know, but um, we ended up opening this restaurant, which to me is just crazy because I am now doing an eight ball a day, waking up, drinking a bottle of wine just to get me started, just to take that edge off so I could be like everybody else. So it was like toast and coffee. So we have this restaurant that's like being written up in magazines and stuff. And I'm just like, it's like I am an imposter in my life. I don't even know how this all is going, but... I, like I said, something so on was, the
1: outward, on the outward looking in, somebody could say that you looked like you had this amazing life, all these yeah. being on the yachts, being like having it all. It sounds like on the outward, somebody would look at you and go, man, this woman, she has everything. She has it all. And the reality was, is that you felt like you had nothing. I had and so nothing. I, and so that's something that I always lean into is because when you look at people, like especially in this day and age where we have Facebook, Instagram, a lot of it is <laughs> bullshit. It's bullshit. It's not the truth. It's not how they really are living. It's not really how they are how their their life is going. The reality is is that you may think those people have what you want, but you probably don't want what they what they have because you're drinking, having an eight every day, and you are unhappy. It feel like an imposter. Feel like your cave your world is caving in around you. And so I just want to hone into that. And like if you're listening to this, understand. You may think you want those things, but just understand the people that you're looking to sometimes may not be the right people to look to because they may be going through the things that you have no fucking clue how bad it is for them.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I had to put on a mask and a face every single day.
1: Miserable. Miserable.
2: Yeah, just like, yeah, not worthy not and people are like, oh, you got you own a restaurant. And I'm like, yeah, and I was like, fuck this. So, meanwhile, I'm racking up the DUIs, okay, and uh, end up having to spend like I think they didn't put me in jail, but they told me you have to spend you have to show up at the jail every Saturday and Sunday morning because I wouldn't just blow like a one five. All my stuff was usually a three or whatever, but it's because I had become so tolerant of alcohol and cocaine that somebody's, you know, my three was like somebody's one. So now I'm in the, in the court system and now the judge says, I want you to spend weekends in jail. And I'm like, okay, how bad could that be? Maybe I'll just take a sleeping pill and sleep through the whole day. you know I'm always trying to find the out or but I'm always trying to find the fun in a situation That's my m o If there's a shitty situation, I'm gonna find a way to make it better, and I've had that in me this whole time, but it's always in an ass backwards way, you know so. I show up for my first day of jail and they put me in this holding cell and there's like six of us. And there's like four of these looking very mean women like they want to beat my ass. And then there's a like this little crackhead, uh, I did smoke some crack so I'm not dissing anybody here, okay? Cause I've done the spectrum, okay? <laughs> crack is not good. I see this girl, she's over here. And these people are just eyeing me like, I might get the shit beat out of me today. So I thought, how am I going to make these people like not constantly beat my ass or something? So I thought, well, I'm just going to bring the Heather crazy. And um, I, I don't know, it's like a fight or flight thing. So I start talking Ebonics, you know this, White Southern girl is in, you know, and I'm like, hey, y'all, what are we going to do for fun in here? And I'm just like spazzing out and they're looking at me. So then I start throwing myself against the wall and falling down, throwing myself against the wall, trying to make them think that I am so crazy that they're not going to want anything to do with me. So, you know, I'm hurting myself. I'm just hurling myself at the wall. And just it's fight or flight at this point. And I'm like, so can we be drinking up in here? Can we, you know, we got any games? Y'all got some cards? We can play some spades, you know? And they're just, all of a sudden, they're looking at me like, oh my God, this white girl is crazy as fuck. So fight or flight, I'm really good at it. You know, trying to like, so these girls are like, we're not going to touch her. We're not going to mess with her. I'm like, hey, can we get some cards in here? Can we play some cards? They leave me alone that Saturday. I show up the next Sunday. I'm like, what's up? Y'all have fun last night? What's up? I'm just being this crazy white girl. (laughs) And they're like, we want to see, they put me to a test. We want to see if you can get us some cards from the guard. I'm like, are you kidding me? I can do that (laughs) because I'm just, Why not try, you know? I ended up getting us a deck of playing cards and they were just beyond themselves. Like now I am the queen in our cell because we're in this little cell. So now we're all becoming best friends. And so that's what I do. I find a shitty situation and turn it around in the ass back crazy way that I can. So I've got six weeks with these girls, all right? I have to show up for six weekends. So I finally get out of trouble from, cause that's my third DUI and uh the judges do not like that so meanwhile i'm just trying to hold together the restaurant and crazy stuff this it's getting harder and harder for me to to maintain because my my daily thing for like the last five six years of i guess the last five years of my crazy drinking career because i'm now just an out of control i'm drinking every morning and now my morning thing is wake up, chug a bottle of wine, do two lines of cocaine, and I'm good. I'm just like people who have coffee and a piece of toast. So that's how I leveled myself off. Then I'm like, then I can go out into the world and just I carried a magnum of wine in my backpack every day all day, okay? Just so in case somebody didn't have any, I always had it. Cuz now alcohol was now it's a it's a need. It's not just fun anymore. It's a need.
1: It's a piece so, of who you are.
2: Yeah, that's who I am. I mean, I think on my last uh, DUI, I blew a 4-4, and um, I still remember it, you know? and
1: uh, That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, so never- those of you that don't know, like a 4-4 would usually be like a comatose. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah.
2: But I think my probably every day was a 3. That's what, my, that's what my system, that was my level, was a three. Everything looked pretty on the outside. Here's this girl who has a restaurant that's very successful. And I'm dying inside. I am dying. Every day I have to put on this mask of, hey, yeah, you know, and everything. And, um, you know, my, my business partner, I was doing an eight ball of cocaine a day. I did that for five years. So an eight ball is like three plus grams or something. So that's, that was my thing. Wake up, do a couple bumps. People have coffee. I have cocaine. So that's me for um, that five years of my life. What's the
1: catalyst to get you out of this? Like where where is the turning point in your life? What is it that happens that makes you turn the, turn the corner and decide that you're done?
2: Okay. So we decide best thing is, is to close this restaurant because I'm ready to kill my partner. He's ready to kill me or I'm ready to commit suicide. So somebody had told me about Key West. They're like, oh, you should move to Key West. You know, that's fun. And we had friends from Virginia who were moving there. So I decided I'm going to move to Key West. No one's going to know me. Fresh start, everything. I'm in Key West 10 days. I get arrested. I got cocaine on me. And, you know, for me, I totally believe in a higher power. Totally believe in God. And I'm sure that that was what was needed. You know, so many times I should have been dead in the yachting and everything. I mean, so many times I've been brought back. So I get arrested. I don't think I've got any cocaine on me. So I was going down the wrong way on a one-way street and, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning. Any time of day, I probably would blow probably a three, whatever, on an alcohol scale because I'm so... Now, fireproof, it's in my system 24-7 because I'm waking up, I'm drinking, I'm doing two lines of cocaine just to set me off. I get arrested, and they're like, do you have anything in your bag? I'm like, no, I have um, my high tops and my bathing suit. So I didn't have a license for my scooter at that time, so they arrested me for no license, whatever. They find cocaine in, my, um, in the bottom, bottom part of my, my purse, and I'm like, I didn't even know I had that. You know, I was bummed.
1: You're like, shit, I would have used that.
2: Uh, no, I know. I'm like, God, where'd you find that? Instead of like, oh no. I was like, where'd you find that? Everything was just like nothing scared me anymore. Because like I said, something broke after that last breakup. And so I was just like, I was just flatlining through my life. Okay. So now I'm looking at going down the wrong way street, driving on a suspended license cocaine and something else. And, um, so they put me in jail. I had wanted to quit for a long time for a long time, but I just didn't know how. And I thought about suicide a few times and I thought, well, if I commit suicide, I'm not going to see these people who died, who I want to see when I die. <laughs> you know, I've got all of these good things. And I really think that, uh, that's what, you know, God had in store for me. I end up getting sober in Key West, which is pretty much unheard of. Okay.
1: Yeah, it's a party town out there.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I've been the there. It's a so. it's a big party. It's a big yeah. party out there for sure.
2: Yeah. I have to go through a drug court program where I have to do drug tests, you know, every week, every week. And I'm like, that's no problem. They're not gonna be I always thought I was never gonna get caught. Well, the first three drops, the first two of course were dirty because I'm trying to drink stuff and everything. And anyway, so now I'm in the court system. Because, you know, I get arrested with that cocaine in my bag also. So they tell me I have to go to the drug court or be in jail because now I got a felony. So that introduced me to, I tried to get sober back in Virginia and I was sober for like four months. So I kept going, whenever things got bad, I'd go to a detox <laughs> and um, spend a couple of days and get my head clear. And then I went to a 28 day program and I just didn't fix the stuff inside I was just, you know, so something switched on this arrest and I found actually, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, which works for some, doesn't work for everyone, but I jumped in and I noticed that there are people from all walks of life that had the same problems that I did. Okay. So the wheels fell off. And so now it's time to put the wheels back on the bus. And when you get sober... And you've been doing this for 15 years of your life constantly. You don't really know who you are. You know, I start working on myself. Start working on myself. So I get four years sober. I'm doing what they tell me. Do meetings and things like that. AA is not for everybody, you know. And but it it worked for me. So I um, ended up four years into that. I get diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and I'm like. Holy shit! That's crazy. Yeah, I'm like, because meanwhile I'm an athlete. I I've always, even when I was in my throes of addiction, I was always working out because you know I always thought I was ex- extremely fat, which I wasn't, and you know just more mental, just all that crap. I get diagnosed with um, ovarian cancer. And I'm like, but you know I'd been sober for like four years, and it wasn't easy getting sober. Down I can
1: only cars. imagine. I can only imagine <laughs> no. because you live on that for so long, and that's just your norm. Yeah, so to get yeah off I that, actually went. I went terrible. to rehab
2: for like three and a half months because you know when I got arrested, I kept dropping dirty, and I just could not not stop. So I went to rehab, and then I come out, and I'm feeling really good, but I don't know who I am anymore. I have no idea who I am anymore. So I'm afraid. I can't lift my head. I'm afraid of my own shadow. You know, and this is so much stuff that people didn't realize in my life because I wore so many masks all the time. And when I finally had to put down those masks, it was like, shit, I can breathe again. I don't have to worry about being found out about not being a proper chef on yachts, about having this restaurant that looked good on the outside that was just crumbling in my body, in my soul. Everything was just Bad. So I get diagnosed with this, and I go up and I talk to this doctor, and he's like, Yeah, you have ovarian cancer. The death rate of that is really, really high. Really, really high.
1: But you're sitting That's- right here talking to me. So
2: Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, I look at him, and this is the weird thing, you know, everything was drama when I was drinking and everything. And I learned a lot, have learned a lot about myself in AA. And so I think that helped me when I got this diagnosed because my first thought wasn't get an eight ball and let's just get fucked up. It wasn't. It was like, all right, what do we do? So they tell me that they found this, I have this rare, rare form of ovarian cancer. (laughs) I'm like, really? So they're like, we have to start immediate chemo. But I didn't think I was going to die. I was like, all right, let's do this. What do do I got to do? that's a whole MO of mine you know i never like i'm fine it's like sense of humor a little bit of denial and some positivity that's me and they're like people couldn't believe that i was like not taking it like real seriously i mean i was but i wasn't so they tell me that i got to do chemo for pretty much 6 months And uh, aggressive chemo. So that's like chemo for seven hours a day. I lose all my hair. I'm bald. I'm everything. And um, after the six or seven months, they tell me it didn't take because I kept being so sick. And I'm like, WTF, man? What do you mean? They said, we got to do a whole new protocol, but we're going to double the poison this time. I'm like, did something in my life prepare me for this? because this last round was kicking my ass, you know, but I was still trying to work because I didn't have anybody taking care of me between, you know, boyfriends. And it's like, all right, well, so I got to try and work by doing, cause I had to do aggressive chemo. So my chemo was seven hours a day, which is enough to kill a, a big horse. So um, now they're telling me they got to double the poison. I'm like, all right, at this point I've got faith but they tell me they're going to have to give me the shot that's new LASTA that's going to attack my cells and improve whatever the chemo is. So I'm like, okay, they said, but you're going to be in a lot of pain for 30 hours. I'm going to tell you what, it felt like I was being, I've never been tasered, but what you can imagine, like shocks, like all over your body for 30 hours, just random. I was like, if this shit doesn't kill me, nothing's going to kill me, nothing, you know, but I knew it was 30 hours. So I'm very faith-based, you know, I believe that there's God, higher power, that's going to like, brought me this far, shit, you're not going to like, this shit's not going to kill me, right? So I prayed a lot, I prayed a lot, just make it a little bit less, just make it a little bit less. So I got through it, and it's just like, I'm like, who gets two diseases in their life? You're an alcoholic, you're a drug addict, and now you got ovarian cancer. Who am I? Wonder Woman, you know? So, you know, it's just, uh, now I'm like eight years cancer free. You know, I beat that shit. You know, but getting through it was was really hard, but I find myself now, it's like, I love it when I, I work with alcoholics and addicts in every aspect of my life. You know, I paddleboard for a living, how about, how is that? You know, I do eco tours. And, um, but you know, the thing is, is that for some weird reason, I never gave up hope. I never, I always knew, well, this, this isn't going to kill me because I always had a little sense of denial in everything. I do. You know. <laughs> but what an
1: amazing, um, what an amazing story. What an amazing story. And I'm right? sure that, so much more to it. So much more to it. Uh, I wish I had hours and hours and hours just right. to hear it all because you, you, you have, man, you have such a great story. You know, there was one thing that you said that I really love, and you said, I always had hope. And so, if you're Absolutely. listening to this, like, understand, just have hope, trust that you can get through this. There is a way out of these things, there is a better way, there are better things. I say that you build grit through gratitude, resilience, intuition, and tenacity. Yes. And that takes like to build grit, you have to have gratitude. You got to be thankful for the things that you have. Absolutely. You have to be resilient and you are one resilient individual. <laughs> you are not going to give up. I you know. have to trust you have to trust your intuition and you you it sounds like you trust your intuition and that you always kept moving forward. You always were like, hey, I'm just going to lean into these things. And then you have to have tenacity. You have to have a firm grip onto something. And you yeah. represent that. And I love <laughs> your story. And I really appreciate you coming on to talk to me because, I mean, you just really represent what my values are and what grit is. Uh, that's really what I see grit is. is and I, and I just love this. Man, like I said, I wish I had hours to talk to you. If the listeners like I want to read your book now, so I, I will definitely be I'll definitely be uh, I'm a big reader, so I'll definitely be picking it up and and taking a gander at it. If the listeners want to find your book, where can they find it?
2: They can find it on Amazon. um, it's called Am I Dead yet? or they can just reach out to me, Heather Gaines, you know, Facebook, Key West, and you know, I can send them one, you know, whatever, whatever's easiest for them. and um, yeah, and um, you know available for speaking gigs also, so.
1: Awesome, great. I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate you coming on to uh, have a conversation with you. Again, you guys hear that, you can find her book on Amazon, Am I Dead Yet? and you can also reach out to her on Facebook, uh, Heather Gaines. So Heather, thank you so much for the conversation. I really appreciate you. I hope you have a good rest of your day.
2: You too, thanks for having me on. Appreciate that.
0: You've been listening to building grit one call at a time. Everyone faces challenges and we talk to people who use grit to be triumphant. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you had some fun along the way. We know we did. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hook up with Nick on Facebook at Nick Wingo and on Instagram at building underscore grit. And remember. Victory is always possible for the person who refuses to stop fighting. This is Building Grit One Call at a Time, signing off.